0: Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We are one month from polling day in the UK general election. The campaign's not been going for long, but it's starting to take shape. Do we know what kind of election it is yet? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. We have a full house today, Helen Thompson, expert in political economy, Chris Bickerton, who's an expert in European politics, and a bit later we're going to come on to a comparison with the elections in Spain, because there are some quite interesting potential parallels there. Mike Kenny, professor of public policy, uh, who also, among many other things, is pretty knowledgeable about, I'm gonna call it English nationalism. And I think we're gonna come onto that too, whether it's possible to think about this in any sense as an English election. We're a week and a half into this campaign. I suppose I should say up front, two of us have got colds. If they are gonna hold elections in winter, us commentators, we're really <laughs> gonna struggle here. My feeling about this, us commentators, is that we're all behaving, I'm going to speak for myself, classic addictive behavior. We know that polls are bad for us. We know over the past few years that we've indulged these vices that have come back to bite us, and yet we can't stop. I mean, maybe you guys are all looking like you're much more disciplined than me. So, my vice is the betting markets. I know, I mean, I know this, that that, that the last four elections, the betting markets have consistently got them wrong and yet each morning I look at odds checker to see what the odds are on a the, the one that I'm interested in, which is a conservative overall majority, you know, the key question in a way. Um, and big movement since Nigel Farage announced that his party were not going to stand in conservative seats. A conservative overall majority is now a strong favourite. I know it doesn't mean anything, and yet, and yet. The other thing that I think all commentators struggle with is we're really aware that national vote share opinion polls are a very poor guide to an election like this. And we're going to talk about this now, Like particularly an election where it's so fragmented. And yet today's story, the Tories are 14 points ahead in the latest YouGov poll 42 to 28. But by definition, Farage's decision means this is not a national vote share election because half the constituencies won't have a Brexit party candidate and half will. So the question here in a way is, if the national vote share is not the appropriate unit of analysis what is and we've on this podcast done enough elections now to know what some of the options are is it regional i think we've known for a generation that scotland is another country in electoral terms we used to think that london was another country and now london looks so fragmented where where do we start it's a really
1: interesting question I mean, at one level, you know, you can look at this in terms of, I suppose, the the nations and regions, that you can see some pretty discernible patterns. As you say, Scotland is going to be an election unto itself. So is Wales. Northern Ireland will be different again, with obviously the commonality of Brexit across those. Then in England, I think the question is how many sort of regional differences there are that you would want to count up. And There are some sort of shorthands we use, like talking about the Southwest, talking about the West Midlands and the North, but actually you can clearly break down into those as well. The only thing I'd say to to complicate this further is I think there are still discernible common patterns. Uh, One really important one, especially in England and Wales is about how people who tend to live in towns or the rural areas vote as compared with people who live in large cities and you know this is a pre-brexit phenomenon but over time we have seen a pretty clear growing bifurcation as I say, in England and Wales, Scotland is different on this, whereby the Conservative Party is more likely to pick up support in rural areas and also in some types of town. Obviously, there is some regional variation there too. Labour, on the other hand, has over time increasingly become the party of some of the larger cities. So that's a pattern that sort of cuts across or interacts with the different regional effects. So that's important. And that give some sense of of a commonality but the other the other aspect to this is tactical voting which in a way pulls things down to a more granular level where clearly you then have to start looking at particular seats and and the particular arithmetic as that falls so i think those two factors also really complicate it
0: but if you just take london for instance so once upon a time we might have thought that london was a labour city But not just because of tactical voting and not just because of Brexit. It's not. So, for a while, it's been clear outer London, inner London are different. But the recent polling, if we can trust it in London, shows that Labour's got real problems in London, not least because there is strong Liberal Democrat support in London, potentially at least. Now, London is a really complicated electoral.
2: I think that that's possible. But I think that it was also looked like that before 2017. And then Labour ran up some really large majorities in. In a London, 30,000 plus in some of the seats. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that that would happen again.
0: I thought you were going to say that maybe we're always fighting the last war and that maybe the 2017 election, which looms large in our consciousness, is the outlier here and we shouldn't. I mean, this is one of the big questions about this election. Everyone's waiting for it to conform to the 2017 pattern, desperately looking for the poll where you see Labour start to tick up. And if you map the campaign onto the 2017 campaign. Labour is roughly where it was in 2017 and then over the last month it went from kind of 28% in the polls to a 40% vote share and people are looking for that sign. I don't think it's...
2: But I think that my point on that would be that London is the most likely place where you might see some of the effect happen again because not enough has changed. So if you take what happened in London last time with Remain voters or centre-left Remain voters, it looked like they were going Liberal Democrat at the beginning of their campaign, and then they went Labour. And you say, like, well, why did that happen? It's the effect of the electoral system, or a significant part is an effect of the electoral system, kicking in. And, and that dilemma remains in place. I would say that if we're looking where it's not going to be like 2017 last time, you've got to look at where the structural dynamics have changed. And I think one place where you can clearly see something different is actually Wales. The 2016 referendum put England and Wales together... And then when we went into the 2017 general election, the Conservatives looked like they were in a strong position in Wales. They really looked like they were in a position to make gains, and then those gains didn't come at all. So Labour had a good comeback in Wales. But I think that things are a bit different than they were last time because, A, it's the place where the Remain Pact has got the most significance because it involves all three parties, Plaid Cymru, Greens and the Liberal Democrats. It's also the place where the Brexit Party has done quite well, did well in the European Parliament elections. But because the Conservatives didn't make gains in Wales last time, it's not the place where the Brexit Party is standing down in those seats that the Conservatives would now be looking to win. So you have something like five party politics in principle in Wales, but with three of them engaging in this tactical alliance with each other.
1: You've also got I think in, in Wales a particular issue around the Welsh Labour Party and they've got a, a new leader who's far less popular and, and charismatic than Carwin Jones yeah, and the Labour Party has been pretty heavily squeezed from both sides as you say I agree that it looks as if the Conservatives could do pretty well in this election there's some polling out recently that suggests that and then on the other side through the Remain Alliance but also the growth of Plaid you know Plaid Cymru has sort of a little bit in the polling in previous elections. And the question of how, what the Welsh Labour Party, its clear unhappiness with the UK Labour Party and its stance on Brexit has been a very big issue in Wales. So, you know, you've got a party that's fighting on both fronts with a leader who doesn't look like a great campaigner. The Welsh Labour Party machine is still pretty formidable. But I do think, you know, that will be a very different kind of dynamic to what you'll see elsewhere.
3: I think one of the, the reasons why it's quite difficult to pin down what's the right unit of analysis for these elections is, coming into the election, I thought it was basically going to be a Brexit election. And I think many people thought it was going to be that, in which case the vote is really a means to an end, depending on what position you have on on Brexit. I suppose Well, that- on
0: one side it is. On the other side, it's quite hard to know what to do. I mean, it's a clear means to an end if you want Brexit, particularly if you want Johnson's deal. You know, if it is a Brexit election, I think there is much more uncertainty on the opposition side as to what you should
3: do. Sure. But the uncertainty is still on the question of would you want to vote Liberal Democrat in order to send a clear message or do you vote for Labour? But there are dilemmas around the question of Remain, but it's still a Remain-Leave sort of election, which would have made, I suppose, the analysis of the voting slightly easier because you could have then have really broken it down, whether or not the Brexit party is putting forward a candidate becomes decisive but I think the first 10 days or so, for me, have really suggested that it's been much less of a Brexit election than was expected. The big theme has been, I think, spending on public services. Who's willing to trash the fiscal rules? Who can spend the most? These are kind of big themes that sort of have this you know, national component to it, where it's almost the return of sort of old politics. And so you begin to think that maybe the really nitty-gritty sort of tactical voting type analysis doesn't capture some of the big trends. So I think it's confusing because these two things are happening at the same time. I think there's a lot of tactical considerations going on around Brexit, and there are a lot of big questions being asked around the big, you know, political issues.
2: I think that it's complicated by another factor as well, and that is the anti-Corbyn factor. Clearly, the Labour Party has, if you like, a a new voter base that Corbyn has generated, but it's also as a counter-reaction generated a significant block of anti-Corbyn voters. And actually, although Corbyn made a recovery last time, he's in a worse position at the start, this time than he was at the start last time. And I think that if you look at what happened in the run-up to the election, what you saw was that the Liberal Democrats were basically trying a two-prong appeal. One was being strongly anti-Corbyn and one was being very much Remain and the strongest Remain position being um, in favour of revoke. But I think one of the interesting things that's, that's happened in the 10 days that we've seen so far is is that really that the Liberal Democrats have quite significantly, I would say, compromised their anti-Corbyn position and really doubled down on their we're going to be the anti-Brexit party and that the Remain alliance has in part done that because they've made... An alliance with two parties, the Greens, I think in particular, that are not anti-Corbyn,
0: but including candidates standing down, so the candidate in Canterbury, the Liberal Democrat, they Democratic now candidates. say they're going to put
2: in a, 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 someone else. Some, going. They're going to put someone else. Yeah. Breaking news. Else yeah. in. Am I out of date? Last yeah. night, I think I saw that last it's night. Like a breaking <laughs> But I think that that's the, that's the vulnerability that they've they've had, and they've tried to now patch that up by saying, okay, we'll, we'll put somebody else in, but the more that they talk about Remainer Alliance then the more it actually might encourage individual Liberal Democrat candidates to do what the one in in Canterbury did. I think it's a problem for them in some other seats where they basically stood down a candidate and saying to their potential Remain Tories who might have been willing to vote for them, now you vote Green. I think that's a different proposition because the Greens aren't an anti-Corbyn party.
1: On the Lib Dems, I, I think you're right on that. I mean, they, obviously, one of the big questions that, that opens up is the degree to which voters will follow those kind of signals. And flipping back to the the polling question that you started with, David, I do think that polling that is interesting strikes me as maybe more useful than the headline polling figures is the polling that's out there on the sort of fundamentals you know on the on the different policy questions and on the views of the leaders and I mean on pretty much everything Johnson is ahead of Corbyn and then if anything it looks as if Johnson's got slightly more popular during the election and Corbyn has flatlined and so going back to the sort of dilemma of different voters I mean the the degree to which Corbyn's toxicity for many voters obviously for Conservative Remainers. I mean, that's, that looks like that's not going to move. But I think also for many Liberal Democrat voters, and of course many potential Labour voters, that, that makes this even more sort of complicated, really, the calc- how that will weigh in people's calculations. And
0: it's weird, So I said, we're addicted to polls, we shouldn't talk about them. And I think we've covered about seven so far. So here's an <laughs> eighth one, which is there was a poll asking Conservative Remainers how they were going to vote in this election. And I believe 1% said they would vote Labour and then maybe a quarter would vote Liberal Democrat. was about 30% was Liberal Democrat, yeah. yeah. There's also a constituency by constituency issue here because constituencies are very different. So I spent the weekend in Stroud, which it turns out to be, I didn't know this before I went there, very interesting constituency, marginal Labour seat, one that's moved back and forth, Labour Conservative over recent elections, very pro-Remain Labour MP, and then a Remain Alliance candidate, the Green candidate, the Green MEP, will be the candidate there. And there's real—you can sense it. There's real animosity because there is a view that it's going to hand the seat to the Conservatives. You have a pro-Remain Labour MP who's going to be undone by the Remain Alliance. This could be repeated in quite a few other places as well. And in that respect, the Remain Alliance doesn't make sense. But the Green position on it—we and we talked about it while I was there—is that there aren't that many places where the Greens could win. They're very unlikely to win in Stroud, though. It, prides itself on being the home, the birthplace of Extinction Rebellion. But if you look at the European election results, actually, the Green vote was good enough that they have a shot. So why would they not at least take their shot if there's going to be a Remain alliance? Why would the Greens opt out, even in places where, okay, it's a real stretch, but they have a shot. But the result will be another seat in the Conservative column. It's a kind of nightmare, actually, for Remain.
3: You can't have an alliance, I think, where there isn't some quid pro quo. So I suppose why be part of this alliance if it systematically excludes you from seats that you might conceivably have a shot at? Maybe that's one that Labour has said, okay, we'll be willing to to compromise on that one. Um, but I think the but remain- Labour
0: aren't willing to compromise on this issue. For Stroud... Well, anyway, I mean, the 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 point is, it would work if Labour were playing the game, but Labour aren't playing the game. It wouldn't work if Labour stood down. It wouldn't
2: work if Labour were playing the game either, though, because it doesn't take account of Conservative remainers, because Conservative remainers are not going to vote for a Labour Remain Alliance candidate.
0: No, but do you think they might vote for a Green candidate if Labour stood down? I mean, this I don't know. Do we know would would Conservative remainers think that the Greens were a less toxic option than? Corbyn. I can't
2: see that aside from anything else because if it came to a hung parliament, any Green MPs would support Corbyn as Prime Minister.
0: Yeah, there is that.
1: But it also goes back to the, the Liberal Democrat dilemma because the political incentives here for Joe Swinson are very, are very mixed. They point in different ways. You know, on the one hand, being well away from Jeremy Corbyn and all the signals she sent, as you said before the campaign that she would not do a deal if there were hung parliament, all of that plays very well with the Liberal Democrat base and a bit beyond. But if you then start to pivot towards a well-remain is more important than that, will that actually begin to cut into the thinking of Tory Remainers, who, as you say, to some degree, are willing to contemplate the Lib Dems? So that, again, it seems to me, introduces a really interesting sort of uncertainty. But I think also, it goes back to Chris's point, it, it, this is partly how the different parties are trying to juggle their different priorities here. And one of the many ways in which Brexit is destabilising is the kind of, the way in which Remain Works as a kind of priority for parties differs because you know it differs locally, it also differs in terms of their calculations of what's in their party interest.
3: I think for for the Remain Alliance, the difficulty is that partisan interests and their stance on the EU do not bring them together. Um, It raises real questions, for instance, about whether Jo Swinson's playing a long game, is she really kind of playing for the next election rather than this one, or is she willing to you know compromise with Labour? On the Leave side, the partisan interests align much more closely, I think, with the Brexit position, especially now that the Brexit party is beginning to to retreat. Um, So that seems to me as a sort of prediction of if you have the kind of the partisan traditions that drive voting along with the question of Brexit, that alignment seems closer on the Leave side than it does on the Remain side.
0: Another question that you always have to ask with this one is, so 2017 looms large, but we're not that far on from 2015. Mike, you mentioned you know, the thought of these having regional swings. And 2015, the most dramatic one was the southwest, where the Tories just won everything, I mean literally, I think literally, actually, they won every seat in a way that shocked people who thought that local variations would kind of put up these little barriers in the way of a kind of sweeping regional trend. And you know, Nick Clegg thought that though his party was polling very badly, incumbency would be a big advantage and popular local Lib Dem MPs would hold on. They didn't. They all got swept away. It's possible that this one will be more like 2015 than 2017. It's at least possible. I mean, for instance, that question of incumbency and the extent to which people do vote for their local MP. And there was, Helen, you mentioned it before, there was certainly in 2017. Sometimes I thought that people said, I'm not voting for Corbyn, I'm voting for my MP. But this massive hostage, to fortune here. this feels to me more like an election where wider forces might well overcome that kind of local variation, and that we could see in parts of the country sweeping, I guess I'm thinking here, conservative gains. I, I think it, 2015 is interesting though,
1: because if you look at, you know, why, what were the, some of the key reasons as well why the South West went blue, there was a clear... A key event in that, or moment in that campaign, was when the Conservatives started to push the idea of an SNP labor alliance. And, you know, remember the images of Ed Miliband sitting in Alex Salmon's pocket. But why are people in the South West particularly worried people, about Scotland? It's a long but, way away. But I th- I do think, actually, the, you talk to anyone involved in that campaign and they will they will tell you the momentum change that people but, but began. But why
2: specifically but in the South West? It's because the Liberal Democrat voters in the South West are... Generally, more closer to the Conservatives and less close to Labour. And when the Liberal Democrats weren't clearly ruling out the possibility of coalition with Labour and the SNP, then the logic took those voters to the Conservative Party. Even though Nick Clegg tried quite hard to sort of rule out the possibility without decisively ruling out the possibility of that alliance, given that there was this genuine possibility that the Labour Party would win with the help of the SNP, then that puts those um, voters back into the Conservative column. And is that
0: why Swinson, okay, it's a bit less clear maybe this week than last, but is she trying very hard not to repeat the mistake of 2015?
2: Well, I I think that...
0: I like that sigh.
2: (laughs) I think that she was until the point when the campaign started and the Remain Alliance. I think that they've actually ventured into much the same problem that they got themselves into in 2015 with the Remain Alliance. Because once you say that you're in an alliance with a party that is willing to go into coalition with or support Labour if there were any Green MPs, and you're actually allied to a nationalist party and Plaid Cymru as well, I think the idea that you're immune to the temptations of Labour plus Liberal Democrat plus Green plus Plaid Cymru plus SNP, particularly if you want to stop Brexit, it's a pretty hard line to hold. I don't think it's credible. I think that what she has done in the last 10 days or so is, is is in that respect, take the Liberal Democrats back into 2015 territory and destroy the party's anti-Corbyn credentials.
3: I don't see what choice she would have. I mean, if you pitch your main message to voters as we want to stop Brexit, we'll even revoke. So clearly that's what you're campaigning on. Then the voting system is such that In order for that even to be plausible, you're going to have to be invested in an alliance with other parties, some of whom you don't like very much and a leader that you don't like at all.
0: Once you've got past your 24 hours of saying we're going to win a majority, which she tried for a bit, but you you do that and then you get back to reality.
3: Yeah, and the reality I think for the Dems is that's a risk, but you can't credibly be a Remain party if you also refuse the Remain alliance.
1: I do think this point about that the kind of voters that they're trying to win back in the southwest are very different. You know, this is that's a completely different contest to what what they're trying to do in London. It's an interesting ca- comparison as well, though, in another way, in that it's quite notable in this campaign, given that there is again the prospect of this alliance if the election falls that way, that actually there's been so little focus as yet on the possibility of Corbyn sitting in, say, Nicholas Sturgeon's pocket. We haven't heard that from the Conservatives. There's time, don't you worry. There's time. It, it may well come. I don't
2: know. I think we have because um, Johnson's done the line of what you get with Corbyn is two referendums. And that's a version of that yeah. argument.
1: Going back to Chris's point, it's interesting, The first, just the first phase, I mean, we, we, it's early days, obviously, and I, I would imagine too that they're holding back. But so far, we've not had a lot of that. And also, I mean, if you think about it, it, it is slightly different this time because the fear last time was that, What was the risk? Well, it was the risk to English taxpayers of having the SNP holding the strings. Last time plus one. Last time plus one, sorry, yes. 2015, (laughs) obliterating 2017. This time, of course, the risk is there'll be an independence referendum. And that's the prospect of Scotland leaving. And it raises just an interesting question for Conservative strategists. How does that play with the English? Is that quite the same fear? I think for some groups of English voters, it does play, or could well play heavily. For others, maybe less so.
0: Because in a way, that that was the next question I was gonna come onto, which is the idea that there are people that you can call English voters here. So you were talking about the Southwest, that there was a particular issue in the Southwest because it was Lib Dem, conservative country. But the wider goal, I think, of the conservative campaign would be to mobilize a kind of English sentiment I don't know you would know Mike I don't know enough to know whether in 2015 that is one way that you could with hindsight analyze it that it was it wasn't regional it was national in the sense that they did successfully mobilize and in Wales too actually so but they mobilized english sentiment and again it's you don't hear it in an explicit way in campaigns the the english nationalist party is the brexit party and they're in a strange state at the moment it's not clear where they're going but, from the conservative side, are you you 're attuned to these things? Do you pick up dog whistle english
1: nationalism i don 't uh, certainly not not as yet in the campaign. I mean I think on two thousand and fifteen it 's worth saying that there is a sort of debate <laughs> amongst the people who crunch these numbers about you know what actually was the effect of that moment in the campaign i mean i i 've talked to quite a lot of people who were involved on the Conservative side and the Labour side. And I mean, just everyone says the same thing in different parts of England as well, that it felt that the whole momentum and dynamic of the campaign changed when
0: the Sturgeon-Miniband argument Exactly, when that argument came out. And and
1: also when it was promoted, because, of course, this is something the Conservatives, you know, they they will certainly use this argument in the current campaign. It's part of a question of emphasis, you know, how much do you really go heavily on that? I think now, actually, something different is happening, really, in Conservative thinking, which is actually Boris Johnson has been very, very keen to promote himself as a very active unionist. So British unionism has become the kind of headline language of the sort of senior parts of the Conservative Party. And if anything, what he wants to do is is push away the accusation that the party is an English nationalist party.
3: Yeah, I think it's really interesting that because that's taking place in the wake if you like of his willingness to do a deal with the European Union that effectively put a border in the Irish Sea and if you like hived off Northern Ireland as an economic territory from the rest of the United Kingdom. I think without a sense that it was creating some sort of enormous pushback by unionists that this was absolutely unacceptable. He did it in a way that Theresa May was never willing to do it and I think for sort of Tory party strategists they would be more sanguine, I think, about doing things that might, you know, would accuse them of being not unionist enough. I think that fear is probably not that ingrained. I think after the the withdrawal agreement that they, you know, were proposing, no, I
2: don't think that the two things are incompatible with each other at all. I think the Conservative Party will be the party of the British Union. It will be saying we're not having a second referendum in Scotland. The SNP aren't going to have that, and it will also be making an argument that appeals to protecting some notion of English interests. In the Union and that will be communicated by the idea that there is a risk of a radical Labour government being propped up by SNP votes and that there won't be a Labour majority in England. I mean I think the Conservatives have about a 60 seat English majority. At the moment it's difficult to see how we're going to move to anything like a Labour majority in England and that Labour's radical agenda will depend on the SNP voting on English matters. That might not be said quite that directly, but I think that that will be part of where the campaign's going. But it won't be in conflict to the Conservatives saying, we're defending the union by saying no to the SNP over the second referendum. They will be complementary to each other.
0: And it's also true, as you've said, that someone has to speak for the unionists in Scotland. And saying no to a second referendum in Scotland is not just appeasing English sentiment. There is maybe 40% of the Scottish electorate who also don't want a second referendum in Scotland. They've got to find somewhere to go. And in Scotland, the, you know,
1: in, in some ways, you might argue that that constitutional question is as important, maybe more important to some people than Brexit. I suppose I'm, I'm just very struck that you've got three places, so Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, where the two constitutional questions sort of interact in quite complicated ways. In England, just much less so. I agree it's not absent entirely, and we may hear more about it. But in England, it's been Brexit and then spending and public services. Something about that is very revealing, I think, about how the British parties relate to the English people and the presumption that the question about the domestic union is is there. It may be important, but it doesn't feel at the moment like the parties believe that will mobilise people
2: i'm just going to say i think the thing that really matters in scotland in terms of the comparison with last time i think there's two things that have changed Lost first 2017 2017 is is that the the snp are now proactively in favor of a referendum quickly which wasn't the case in 2017 and labor has basically moved to being a party that's willing to accept that second referendum whereas labor was a unionist party in scotland last time so last time you had a A lot of tactical unionist voting it's one of the reasons why there's so many marginal seats in Scotland or disproportionate number of marginal seats in Scotland but Labour's pulled out essentially of that unionist coalition in Scotland so the unionist vote in Scotland is down to the conservatives and the and the liberal democrats now that may make life easier for the smp regardless of the fact that they're also more somewhat more popular than they were but it also may be that one of those two parties i think more likely actually the conservatives and the liberal democrats if you look at where the seats ended up last time would be the beneficiary
0: talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books in 2017, there was a thought at the beginning of the campaign, it would be a Brexit referendum. Theresa May wanted to frame it like that, and it wasn't. The, the squeeze on the other parties, it became a two-party domestic election. So Chris, you said this time around, you thought this was going to be a Brexit election again, and, and something like that is repeating itself. I think you know, so much is different that we'll have to see. But one thing that is noticeable is that Johnson's deal, which is you know, potentially at least a weakness for him, given not least he has had to row back on quite a few commitments, is not so far coming under a huge amount of scrutiny. It would have come under scrutiny. I mean, this seems to be the significance of Farage's decision, leaving out polling and vote shares and so on. If the Brexit party were campaigning in conservative seats, Farage's line would be, this deal is not Brexit. If they're only campaigning in Labour seats, his line will be, don't let the Remainers stop it from happening. It doesn't sound to me like there's huge willingness on the part of the Labour Party to interrogate Johnson's deal because that makes it a Brexit election again. So it's potentially is significant what Farage has done, because I always thought that deal was possibly a weakness for Johnson, just because in elections, if you can paint your opponents as hypocrites or flip floppers or whatever, it is a big advantage. And that's where he's weak, not just die in a ditch and everything else. But if you look at the deal, it, it's not consistent with things that he said. And he's massively compromised. But that is a long way to go again. But that seems to have gone away. I can't imagine that in the head to head between Johnson and Corbyn, Corbyn is going to do a kind of forensic dismantling of the deal. for would maybe not forensic, but probably quite effective. But he's not going to be, A, fighting Johnson and, B, in those debates.
3: I think that's been a massive shift, is the sense that if you are a Leave voter, your vote sort of choice, if you like, has effectively disappeared, potentially, because you could have had a choice between different versions of leaving if the brexit party stood for a kind of clean break whereas the tory party have this deal whereas now brexit is this deal and i think that's a very significant change the labour party i think from the very beginning has a vested interest in taking attention well away from brexit it's got its own position that's become simpler i think but is still sort of convoluted and has the kind of the the legacy of the last 3 years so it's really pushed hard for making this not a brexit election but the result is that brexit and the deal is just receded into the distance. I mean, the only issue that's come up so far has been, is it plausible that Johnson will promise that we have this deal that now goes through, the UK then leaves, and then it tries to cobble together a trade agreement in a very restricted period of time. What happens when that deadline for the trade agreement runs out?
0: And again, Farage said, the thing that changed his mind overnight was hearing Johnson say on TV, I will not ask for an extension through 2020 on the second phase. But again, like, why would you believe Johnson? I mean, that's...
2: (laughs) I think, though, that is his weakness with Conservative Remainers, so who probably are willing to accept the new withdrawal agreement. I mean, if you look at the fact that they voted for it in Parliament, including some of those who had the whip taken away from them, but they are hesitant, I think, about giving the Conservatives under Johnson a sufficient majority that would give them a reasonable amount of freedom of manoeuvre about what happens in terms of the trade agreement because I think you could look at it from the point of view of you know, the internal fight within the Conservative Party that it, it stopped being about actually leaving the European Union that that's Conservative Party is now a fairly straightforward leave the European Union Party but it's nowhere near a unified party about what the future re- economic relationship with the EU should be.
0: And if someone like David Gork is emblematic of this I mean he's been unbelievably forthright about the fact that he thinks that what Johnson is saying is just Gibberish. It's just nonsense. The idea that near the end of 2020 is a realistic target. I think there's also a, a sort of campaign dimension to it, or strategy
1: com- dimension, which is that one quite big difference that that decision makes is that if you're in those seats where the Conservative Party's got a small lead, where you've got an incumbent, say, and you've got a small lead over mostly the Labour Party, actually, you probably, if you're the Conservative Party, don't need to put quite as many resources into that into that particular seat which does free up the chance to go even harder after some of the seats in the midlands and the north i mean the other the other decision that he hasn't taken which yet anyway which might of course have made a big difference were to decide not to compete in the other seats as well and you know it is possible that the brexit party standing in some of those seats could make a difference in maybe a handful of seats it's a very consequential decision i think for the campaign
0: I always think with those two front analogies, I always think of the First World War and when Lenin surrendered and the Germans thought, hooray, we don't have to fight on the East anymore, we're going to storm it in the West. I think you should always be a bit wary, not least because they turned out they couldn't uh, leave the East to take care of itself. But That's true, but, but there is a, there is an argument in the... In I'm cons- not saying Farage is Lenin, that kind, I kind of am. <laughs> <and. laughs> it's an interesting
1: analogy. I mean, you know, there, there's a debate in conservative circles about 2017 and... and the different ways in which they got that wrong and there is a view that actually they didn't put enough resource into defending seats and they just assumed it would be an onward march into the kind of, you know, into some of the town heavy seats and, and places in, in Okay, so 2017 was
0: 1918 <laughs> A last thing which is the Spanish elections, which I mentioned at the beginning, because it does tie into some of these things, including the Scotland-Catalonia question, but also because the Spanish elections were called by a government that was facing a kind of gridlock and and needed another election. It's their fourth in four years. We're on our third in four years. But if you include the two referendums, we're on our fifth in five years. It was thought that this time round, the voters would be given a strong signal it was time to break the deadlock. And what the voters did, insofar as they have a collective mind, was to entrench the deadlock. It's harder now to create a government. We may see that too. It's definitely within the bounds of not just the possible, but some of the probable outcomes, I mean, for instance, were this election to produce exactly the same result as last time, it would be more gridlocked than last time because the DUP conservative government option is probably off the table. So if, and again, within the spread betting markets, it's moved, but a week ago, you were looking at sort of 315 conservative seats. That would be a more gridlocked parliament than last time so there's that we may be in the same situation and and we're seeing in Spain the attempts to kind of say to people look we've given you four chances to break this so now we're just going to have to do it ourselves and cobble together a coalition even though there's no majority as yet but the other thing is that Catalonian independence led to a rise of the far right and we haven't quite seen that here but we've been touching on and our far right is nothing like the Spanish far right I think the Spanish far right is further to the right not least because it has a fascist heritage but It's at least possible, again, that post this election, the issue of Scotland will drive not just English nationalism, but a kind of hardening of support for some further right politics and politicians in this country. I'm looking at Chris, because this is your... Do you see parallels?
3: I think certainly we should sort of look at Spain and feel a chastening effect of that election. I and mean, I think we've had this discussion on this podcast before about an election having this clarifying you know, effect. Finally, we can move beyond the impasse because the election will just breathe a bit of oxygen into our political system. I've got this kind of sneaking feeling that the way especially the way Brexit worked out, is you always think you're over the hill and then something else comes up that sort of there's another, you know, obstacle or another. I think the election will probably be the same. It just simply won't be as decisive as we as we had hoped and will be another step in this kind of slow, slightly tortuous process.
0: We've done so well not making predictions. You've just made one. Well, that would be
3: mine then, uh, <laughs> is that it just simply will not have yeah, the we decisive. We you of that over thing.
0: breakfast on the 13th.
3: Um, the case in Spain, I don't know. I mean, I think um, there is, I suppose, a lesson which is, Eventually, if there is this gridlock, then it can push parties to act in ways which before they'd simply been unwilling to do. And that, that then is on, you know, that that's their response to the situation is they also, these are parties, many of whom simply want to govern. And if they're faced with a situation where fragmentation is not a temporary thing, but it becomes Built into the electoral system and into the political party system, then there have to be these compromises, which I think is what we've seen.
0: Particularly on the left, it's looking like, potentially at least.
3: Well, because there is the potential for it. I mean, I think on the right, given the state of the sort of centre right party in Spain, it wasn't really an option, but I think they might have done the same thing.
0: I mean, you had. I, am I right? Centre right plus far right in Spain gives you more seats than centre left plus Podemos? Well, it's pretty close, isn't it? But uh, centre right plus far right is probably a step too far whereas at the moment it's looking like centre-left plus Podemos and then the hope is and and we may get this after our election with Corbyn and and then things just kind of can fit around it in a slightly ad hoc way and you just about get to a majority and then you see there was a lot of scepticism in Portugal not that long ago that this these governments could be stable but it turns out they are they can at least potentially be stable it could work I suppose I mean there are a few there the
3: combination of Podemos and the, the socialists in Spain still leaves them some way short and I think the question that is in the background is the question of uh, Catalonia which I think is not so you know directly comparable to Scotland to be honest I think it's much more divisive much more problematic um,
0: do, do you think it could come closer to being comparable if we get a Johnson so, so the other scenario so there's the gridlock scenario and will we see what we're seeing in Spain at the moment which is a Even if Corbyn doesn't have the most seats, which the socialists do in Spain, but sort of you're short of a majority, but bit by bit, you sort of draw people in until you're close enough. And so that's one possibility. And saying, look, the gridlock can't continue. So you get this weird alliance that wouldn't have been possible before, but somehow people think, look, enough is enough. The other possibility is Johnson wins, refuses a second Scottish referendum. And we do move quite quickly to a more Catalonian-style standoff. I mean, not quite, I think, troops on the streets of Edinburgh Do the SNP start saying we're going to have a referendum anyway? I mean, you could get quite quickly to a more contentious policy.
3: Though the difference is there is a precedent in the United Kingdom that a referendum was accepted as legitimate once. The kind of discussion that you'd have between a Johnson government and the SNP wanting to negotiate a new referendum wouldn't be the same, I think. It wouldn't be the way it is in Spain, which is that you have a hardening of positions and one side considers it legitimate and right and the other side considers it simply out of the question, not even possible to discuss it in constitutional terms you know outrageous that i think is different so i don't think we'd ever get there how it would be resolved if you had a johnson government really digging down and refusing to acquiesce i don't know
2: i think that the the difficult one for us is probably more the the impasse because we've got two structural things that i think are basically pushing us into that position if there isn't an overall Conservative majority. The first of them is the difficulty Labour has winning so long as it's so weak in Scotland, because that kind of has to introduce the SNP into it, and then we get into the other scenario. And the second is, is that the experience of the coalition government has led the Liberal Democrats to say, at least since 2017, that it won't support either main party. Now, we got out of that last time in a sort of way by the DUP, but that was... Made achieving Brexit as Theresa May wanted to be incredibly difficult. And as you say, it's not clear that that could be an option next time. So if you have the parties that we have and you have the Liberal Democrats supposedly in the middle, but actually unwilling to contemplate agreements with either of the parties, then we are stuck.
0: And there's that thing, I think there's a hashtag for it on Twitter, but they kind of, at some point, the dog that barks is hashtag Sinn Féin taking up their seats. There's, there are some <laughs> scenarios where... Uh, It'll, in our impasse situation, given actually what we've learned about the DUP-Tory relationship, I don't know enough to know whether this is a plausible thing to say or not, but a Corbyn government with some Sinn Féin involvement is, are you looking, is it completely impossible? I I think it's pretty unlikely. I think that would be a a huge decision for
1: Sinn Féin to make. I mean, mean, it is... Quite a big decision for the other... For for the other side. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting that that in, in the Northern Ireland contest, which we we haven't touched on enough. I mean, there has been this question, you know, one, one of the, the sort of elements that's that, that has been pushed against Sinn Féin is, is, you know, by the SDLP when it looked like they would stand against Sinn Féin, a number of states was, well, don't vote for them because they're not going to represent you. But of course, in, in Northern Ireland, we've seen a lot of manoeuvres around tactical voting, which are about Brexit but they're also about the unionist nationalist dichotomy so it works
0: very differently there I, I would I would be really surprised if Sinn Féin went back on that. So, so to try and sum that up I'm, I'm getting a sense that it's at least possible our impasse could be more of an impasse than the Spanish impasse partly because okay in Spain there's a f- real division around Catalonia but we've already got separate national politics baked into our democracy legitimately and that makes this so hard. So if, if we do get the Conservatives 10, 15 short of a majority, it, it could be another election in six months again.
3: Yes, legitimately, but also some, somewhat precariously, because you have this question of a second referendum in Scotland hanging over, which would politicise things further. You know, it's not as if the politics of the different, you know, component parts of the United King, Kingdom are baked in in a stable way. They're still susceptible to political competition, especially in Scotland. And so I think that's, I think the the difference with Spain is also that Spain has transitioned towards a multi-party system, where these parties that have emerged are not sort of. You know, they're nothing like the Brexit Party, which is a kind of curious, you know, thing. It's uh, not even a party, It's not actually. even a party. Um, it's also clearly a sort of a sort of, in some way, the kind of the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party. And so it's, it's all kind personality personality. All these things. Whereas in Spain, you have Podemos, you have uh, Ciudadanos, which lost heavily, but nevertheless had represented something. You've got the far-right party, which is quite strong. Now, these are parties that are different, I think, from the United Kingdom situation, which is again, makes it more likely for the UK, I think, for it to be too difficult to to overcome. This and Podemos
0: end. has been on a long journey that may be about to end in government, even though it's been losing votes and seats consistently.
2: I mean, I think that leaving, leaving Brexit aside, you would not expect us to be able to have stable politics if you look at our past history, when you have one of the multinational parts of the union, in this case, Scotland, previously Ireland, where the main parties in England and Wales are not actually competitive in those places and we actually had an election where they were competitive last time because they formed a a de facto anti-SNP alliance but that isn't going to take place this time. So the possibility of the SNP winning as many seats as they did in 2015, I don't say I think that it's likely but it's certainly within the bounds of the possible outcomes and you simply can't have a stable politics given the nature of British politics in, in that way.
0: So when you said Ireland, there uh, did you mean Northern Ireland? Did you mean I meant Ireland in the
2: past? What I meant was, is if you look at like the, the how the crisis of um, UK politics builds up, you know, up to the 1910-1914 crisis, it starts at the point when the Conservatives and the Liberal parties stop winning seats in Ireland.
0: I thought you meant that. I just wanted to check. <laughs> I'm glad you meant that.
1: <laughs> and I think in terms of the understanding the the nature of of the impasse that we might be about to experience, on the Scottish question specifically if, I mean, it's pretty much when the um, SNP government puts in a a request for another referendum, and when that's refused by a Johnson-led government, the next phase of that is extremely uncertain. I mean, I think it's quite likely that we will get back to a legal case, a legal challenge, and back to the Supreme Court. And at the same time, the politics of that become very difficult. We don't have an obvious precedent for that situation. But It is quite clear that the SNP don't, I think, want to go down the kind of Catalonian model of this rapidly escalating, but they are under pressure from many of their their activists and some of their supporters. At the same time, you know, the Conservatives will have to think about what their offer is to Scotland in that particular moment. I mean, just to say no without any accompanying promise
0: or consideration of, of Scotland's position will be extremely difficult. I thought we'd done quite well not to mention the Supreme Court until the end, but you're right. <laughs> the Supreme Court is going to play a bigger and bigger part in our politics. In future episodes, we're also going to be talking about technology in this election and what we think is going on and maybe what we're missing on the platforms, including Facebook. And as we get there with the vote, we will start making predictions. No, we won't. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Waffles, waffles, waffles.
3: I had a minimalist breakfast this morning. Oh,
2: which
0: of
3: uh, stuff? <laughs> Define
1: minimalism.
0: <laughs> this coffee in front
2: of
3: you? So I went for a run, amazingly. Oh. Um, and uh, never very hungry. That was after a run. As breakfast? Half a banana.
2: It does suppress your appetite, I think. For a, a while, yeah. And then it hits, yeah. <laughs> Halfway through the yeah, podcast, you'll during, start eating that's everything. That's vision, you get tearful. It's, like, it's
0: <laughs> slightly hysterical as well. It's a bit
3: touchy. But I worked out a definition of getting old, is that you come back after a 30-minute run and you actually feel quite happy with yourself. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I like that. Um, that means, yeah, I've been black. old all my life.